come on in as long as you're not the police. So I look at Mike, I go, I go, what if we are the police? Under no circumstance does a 14-year-old have consensual sexual relations with a 24-year-old person. There is so much vulnerability there. And when you have an authority figure, and we saw wires coming from the bathroom into the bedroom. Well, he'd actually had a camera in there. And now, the Safety Zone. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Safety Zone. And we have a special guest with us today. His name is Jeff Weiser, and we're going to let Mike introduce him because they have a special connection in their background. And we're going to hear a lot more about that and some other things that Jeff's going to really bring to the uh, program today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, welcome, Jeff. And we do have kind of a history that goes back many, many years. We struggled through the Nashville Metropolitan <laughs> Police Department Training Academy back in, uh, started in 1991, graduated in the spring of 92. So uh, met Jeff a long time ago, not only going through the academy together, we were part of helping start and really kind of mature what became the largest domestic violence program in the United States back in the early 90s. So yeah, welcome to the show, Jeff. Well, thank you, Michael. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. And yes, we do go way back. I think back in those days during the Academy, we could sure run a lot better than we can now. That's for sure. <laughs> well, like I said, I've uh, I've been retired now four years uh, after 33 years in law enforcement. And as I like to say, uh, happily retired. And I wish I had a dollar now for everyone that's come up to me and said, man, aren't you glad to be retired now from the police department? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I love it now. I've been four years at Franklin Road Academy as director of security. I teach a criminology class, get to coach baseball. So it's kind of kind of living my uh, my second life here and really enjoying it. Well, that's awesome. And you started out in Dallas. So you've kind of tracked from Texas to Nashville. So um, we'll get into a little more depth in a little bit. But how many years were you a police officer in Dallas? Eight years in Dallas. That's where I met my wife and she was from Nashville. So that's what that's what brought me to Nashville. So been a few years ago now. That's awesome. I want to get into some details just talking through. You've had a pretty eclectic career as an investigator. You've crossed over a lot of different uh, areas of interpersonal violence within the police department. I know you did a short stint in internal affairs, so maybe just a little bit about Mm. that before we get into, you know, especially at this time when there's such a huge Mm. movement to defund negatively, look at police. I mean, you've been on both sides of this, so Let's talk a little bit about that side, and then we'll get into really what we want to talk about. It's more the interpersonal violence side of what you investigated. For sure, I did. Uh, Chief Turner asked me, I was actually a domestic violence detective, and he asked me to go uh, work internal affairs for a couple of years. You know, it wasn't something I wanted to do. It wasn't something I was looking to do. Um, you know, I still wanted to be liked by my buddies in the police department. As I did this, I realized that for the most part, police departments like in Nashville, we really do a pretty good job of policing our own. It's something the uh, I think the public doesn't realize that, you know, not only do we go through the strict backgrounds checks in the background to get hired on and going through the academy, you know, they do their best to weed the bad apples out. As we know, there are bad apples. Um, moreover, you know, we have internal affairs that if you mess up, you're going to get investigated. You're going to get fired. And there were some cases that I worked where 
two officers ended up getting terminated because of their conduct and the violations that they did. They also realized, too, as you know, Mike, we also have a grand jury. I mean, there's many avenues that before you ever get, we could talk about a community oversight board, which I'm not really in favor of, but there's there's lots of avenues there that police already get investigated, that get checked. You know, in saying that, Jeff, where do you think the the failure is when we look at this whole issue of defunding that came about from the George Floyd, which was horrible, horrible incident. Does every department, are they all on top of internal affairs? I mean, does it vary? I mean, where do you see the lack in rooting out some of these bad apples? Well, we know that the larger departments all have internal affairs and they all have to have something set in place. I'm not sure about like a real small town department. They probably don't have their own internal affairs. I would think some of them probably contract out to either the county or the state to assist them in those type of matters. Mm. But as of like Nashville, big city, I mean, we have, we actually call it office of professional accountability and it's a pretty large unit. And not only does an officer, let's say he does some conduct wrong, it initially gets investigated by their immediate supervisor. If it's something that they can't handle, then it gets pushed to OPA or our internal affairs to investigate. You know, talking about defunding the police, I mean, that's kind of a whole separate issue. And, mm-hmm. and I always wonder, and I ask myself, what do they mean by defunding the police? What is their goal? What do they want to defund the police? Cut our salaries, cut the number of officers on the streets, take away some of our equipment. What really are the ramifications or, or is it just a buzzword that sounds good right now that they're able to use? Right. And I know that we've discussed on other programs that just the whole issue of recruitment and really focusing on that versus, you know, kind of the direction that everything's going, because obviously the majority of police officers are good people and are doing a good job. You know, one of the issues that I have, and and Michael, remember when we came on the police department, and and I kind of see this, it's happened here in Nashville. When we came on, we actually had to have a four-year degree. It was really, really hard to get on the police department. I think they took, there were 55 in our class, and I think there were about four or 5,000 applicants. So they really, there was a big weeding out process. Well, now they're not getting 5,000 applicants. They may be getting thousands. They've had to kind of lower standards to increase that pool of number of candidates to where now you don't need a four-year degree. You don't need a two-year degree. They've probably lowered some of the standards like used to be, I mean, if you got a class A misdemeanor, you weren't going to get hired. Well, they've probably said kind of eliminated parts of that too, of arrest history. And that's kind of what I worry about. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's great. We've increased this pool. What type of candidates are we getting now? We may end up now going forward with more cases like you had in Minneapolis than less cases. Because if you're really qualified, and I've done this too, when I go and speak to groups, I go, raise your hand if you'd like your your child to be a police officer. Nobody does that now. Who wants to be a police officer now? I know I have a daughter in college. I know what she's not going to be. You know, (laughs) she's going to be an accountant. She's going to be a police officer. No, I, th- I think, Jeff, you bring up a great point because it was very competitive when 
we went through the academy and we still had two or three men that I can think of that got through and all the way through the academy that later, you know, one of them, you know, our unit that Jeff and I helped develop was investigated very early on and ended up killing himself in an attempt to kill her. And so even in a, in a time where the standards were really high, you still, it's a very attractive profession for those that seek power and control. And I think we have lowered the bar. And I think what's been happening over the last six months, we've talked about it, Melinda, you're creating a perfect storm because nobody wants their children going into law enforcement. I come from a myself, my dad, my grandfather, my cousin, my brother, my wife. I mean, I got a whole ha- family of law enforcement. Not a single one of them want any of their children, mm-hmm. grandchildren, cousins going into this profession. And so what's you know going to happen, you know, I've seen where the drop program, the number of officers in New York and these cities that are having huge problems, the number of officers now taking the drop program have just exponentially exploded, which means all your experience, all of that's going to leave and we're going to backfill it with who? People that we're just going to kind of have to accept because we need numbers. And so we are creating a huge problem here right now that's going to be really hard to reverse. And you see that here in Nashville. And and just to touch on what you said, Mike, I always worry about the experience gap that, that we've created now. I mean, you got officers that's just been on a couple of years and they're training officers now, training the younger officers. Because even in Nashville, like a lot of my friends now, they're they're either leaving now or they're looking to leave and retire. And you're losing so much experience that's not being passed on to the younger officers. And so they're just kind of learning on their own. And, and let's face it, they're going to learn some bad habits because there's just not that experience out there. And there's no replacement for experience. Or the lack of experience to train them. I can remember when Jeff and I came on, there was a mass exodus out of what was at that time called our central station. Um, You had a bid process. And because of just kind of, I think, the working climate, not the public, but more of the leadership in that particular precinct, all the experience left. And I can remember being assigned there as one two-month tour of duty, so to speak, when I was with a training officer. And you had, like Jeff said, you had training officers that hadn't been on long enough to even figure out what they were doing. And now all the experience was gone, but it was the hottest precinct in the city where everything was happening. And now you're going to take that model that I've seen and you're going to spread that across the nation. And so, you know, when we talk about getting more minorities interested in law enforcement, how are you going to do that? How are you going to get more women interested in law enforcement? I mean, how are you going to recruit them? And now, Jeff, it's interesting that you've moved from law enforcement into a school setting because you're trying to get police out of the schools. And what a perfect place to introduce Mm -hmm. what a career in law enforcement can be, especially for minorities that you want to be recruiting to be more representative of your community. Now you're going to pull that whole recruiting tool out of the school system. How are you going to recruit anybody? That's a great question. And the fact is, I'll ask these kids, who's interested in law enforcement? This is my third year teaching criminology. My first two years, you know, I'd have kids who were actually really interested. I, I know one that went on to Murray State to major in criminal justice. But now, like this year, the class, I said, who's interested in being a police officer? Nobody raised their hand. They're kind of interested in, they watch Criminal Minds and stuff like that. And that's kind of what they want. CSI. Yeah. And, and, and so we obviously touch a lot on that. But 
really, I, I don't see any of these young kids now. They, they see what's going on. Do they want to be part of that? I go, you could be part of the solution, not the problem. But that really doesn't translate at that age. They just say, right. no, we're, we're not interested in police officers. And I can assure you their parents don't want them to be police officers, too. And most police officers don't want their children, just like you said, to be police officers. That, you know, it's much like firemen, right? It's kind of generational. And so yes. you get a lot of it in your blood, so to speak. And now you've got that kind of being blocked and, and just being eliminated because as officers retire, it's the last place they want to see their children move into. I mean, what's this world going to look like uh, 10 or 15 years into their career if we're on this continuous trajectory we're on right now? For sure. It, it is a huge worry now thinking about, okay, what what are the pool of candidates going to look, look like in five years, say? You know, are we going to have more incidents or less incidents? I always say, be careful what you ask for. You might get it with defunding the police. And that's kind of what's happening. Exactly. And it's such a need, reverting back to your your background, Jeff, um, and like Mike's in in domestic violence. And we want to bring up a particular case that you worked on involving child sexual abuse. And recently, Mike wrote an op-ed that came out in a paper about the law in California that went through. And, you know, I'll switch it over to Mike, but you worked on an important case that connects in so many concerns that we have in terms of children giving consent, high schoolers, you know, 14-year-old to somebody 10 years their, their senior, when you've got the whole issue of authority, especially with a teacher in school. And so, you know, Mike, I think it would be good to really ask Jeff in terms of his background in that, because we're just dealing with so much of this today. Well, and I tell you, some of the scathing comments I've received on both the article and the podcast related to this case in California, but it just illustrates, I'm not saying this in a negative way, Melinda, but the public relations machine behind this legislation yeah. in California. Yeah. The spin. You know, the spin. Yes, I realize it did not decriminalize a 24-year-old having sex with a 14-year-old. However, it is creating an environment where we're no longer required to have them register as a sex offender if they're having consensual. But it was adding this language. And we know what happens. You start to add this language like consensual. And for me, I look at it and say, under no circumstance does a 14-year-old have consensual sexual relations with a 24-year-old person. The problems with this legislation are more of what it's introducing and where this legislation leads. We've often joked, everything that starts in the West starts to move East, right? So yeah, I pay grand attention to what's happening out in California. And Jeff, if you kind of frame for us, you know, when I left Nashville back in 1998, you were still at the domestic violence unit. I left the unit, left the department altogether. You went to internal affairs for a while, but then I think you said you spent the last part of your career working child sex abuse and just kind of frame how that happened and just kind of that part of the of your career. Sure. You know, I started out you know, Mike, with you being part of the first domestic violence unit in Nashville. And at the time, I, I really had a passion for it. I'll, I'll never forget. I hadn't been on like six months or so. And I was working midnights in, in Madison, as you, as you remember. And I remember getting a call. It was like three days before Christmas. And this is kind of my first experience of real domestic violence and what it does to children. 
And we got a call around midnight and I go there to this small, it was a really small duplex. And I look to the right and I, there's a lady sitting there. She has this massive black eye bleeding from her nose. And I look straight ahead and here's a Christmas tree with just a few presents underneath it. And they're destroyed. Trees destroyed the presents. Two little kids about five and three are sitting there crying, holding each other. What had happened, their father had come home in a drunken rage, beat the mother, tore up the Christmas presents, and um, it, and then just left. I Fortunately, in Nashville, we were able to, I was able to go down and get a warrant, did not have to take the victim down there, got a warrant, got him arrested. And it really, it, mm. you know, I just, I had such a great childhood. Christmas was a great memory. What did these kids have? I mean, it was a terrible memory. And this is something that officers do every day that you never hear about in the media. I remember telling some of my buddies what had happened. Obviously, the mother didn't have a lot of money. We went to Walmart the next day and bought some gifts and took it back to that family. Just so these kids would have some under the tree. And Michael, tell you, officers do that all the time. But rarely does that ever get reported. And that really, when this domestic violence unit came up, it was like, man, I think you can really make a positive change here. And it was one of the reasons that I got involved in it. And and I love working those. Um, and I think I did that for about eight years with Nashville, went to internal affairs. Then I went from there, I transitioned to, um, I worked homicide for about three years. Really enjoy that. Real challenging. I didn't really care about getting called out at three in the morning that we had a dead body somewhere, but it's just all part of it. And I like that. But I really found a passion my last eight years. I went to the sex crime unit and was assigned mainly just to child sex abuse cases. Mm -hmm. And a lot of officers say, man, I don't know how you can do that, how you can work those. But I loved working those cases. I loved interviewing those suspects. A lot of these cases, they're confession-based cases because, you know, Mm -hmm. people watch CSI. They watch Criminal Minds and, oh, you can get DNA here. You can... You can get any of this forensic evidence. The fact of the matter, in most child sex abuse cases, you don't have that because does a child disclose immediately after something's happened? No, it's usually going to be months away. By then, you're not going to have any forensic evidence. You're not going to have any physical evidence. So those are the cases that you really have to work hard to try to interview a suspect to try to get a confession. And it's something I love sitting in their living room and talking to a suspect, kind of breaking them down a little bit, realizing that if I don't get a confession, I'm probably not going to get a conviction. And mm-hmm. and that was just something that I just, I love the challenge of it. And I love to interview these guys and make them think that, man, I'm their best friend in the world. And I wanted to walk out of the interview with them thinking about it. And then when we eventually have a jury trial and they play and we play the interview where they finally admit to what they did, invariably, it always happens. You'll look, I'll look over at them during the trial and they'll slowly put their head down in their hands saying, what the heck was I doing? Why did I say that? But that was just, that was the big challenge of it. And that was really a passion or a calling that I had for those type of cases. Well, it's a lot of pressure too, as an investigator, because you are kind of 
the make or break then in a confession-based environment. And so it does take some passion. And I know in a lot of departments, and I have a buddy up in New Hampshire that retired recently as well. He said he got involved in child sex abuse investigation because he was the youngest person on the department and they had to pick somebody to go down to Boston for a two-week class. And he was so mad when he drove down there. And he said, the first two days I was mad because I'm the rookie and I don't want to investigate these crimes. They're ugly and I don't want to see it. I don't want to talk about it. And he said on the third day, they brought in a group of adults that had survived child sex abuse. And he said, it Mm -hmm. changed my whole life, not just his career, Mm -hmm. but it changed his whole life. He spent 30 years working child sex abuse, internet-based crimes. I can remember him going into chat rooms and showing me just live activity and who some of these people are and the screen names and the predators that were out there. But it just, it takes somebody that is Mm -hmm. passionate. goes back to that first few minutes we were talking about, that experience and who are we bringing in? I mean, who's going to take over these investigations in the next 10 years as we're losing this experience and the passion behind this? But I know, Jeff, we talked a few weeks ago about one particular case you worked in Nashville, and I think it brings out a lot of points that we want to work through. You want to give us a little bit of history on this uh, school teacher and very affluent neighborhood he comes from? He does. Uh, Louis Levine, as far as I know, he's still sitting in a federal penitentiary somewhere in Kentucky, but he lived in Belmead, which is one of the most affluent areas in Nashville. It's, as they like to say in Nashville, it's full of old money. Not sure mm-hmm. what old money means, but that's what they like to say. Mm-hmm. But, but I'll never forget this. I, I had a call and it was just an innocuous call. It came out as a concerned parent that he was letting kids come over there and just drink alcohol. That's how this started. Pretty innocuous. Went over there and met with the parent, the child. And from there, it just took off the investigation. I know he had been investigated before, but they didn't find anything. I actually started from one student to another teenager to another teenager. They started telling me about the house that they would go over there and drink, that he would allow them to do drugs in the house. They talked about this little house in the back where they could go out there and he would have porno movies, chocolate, lubricants, and let them do whatever they wanted to. It was, and he talked about an isolation chamber that he had into that was like a waterbed with a box over it. I actually went out there. I think I interviewed him at one point. And I looked at his, do you remember MySpace? Mm-hmm. He had a MySpace account back then. Mm-hmm. And it was just watching this. I'm going, it was just creepy. Um, mm-hmm. Just the stuff that he had on there. And again, he had been an educator in the Nashville area for about 30 years. He worked at the Cumberland Science Museum, to, at these youth camps, all different schools. His father was a very prominent attorney. He was a city council member. And it was actually his father's house that he was living in and in the Bellmead area. I eventually got enough to do a search warrant of the house. And when we went in and did the search warrant, it was unbelievable, this house. I mean, he was a science teacher and he had all these stuffed animals and stuffed snakes. I mean, if I went in there at night, I would have been just creeped out by it. Mm. But um, we went in and there was a bathroom. I'll never forget this. It was a small bathroom. And in the bathroom, he had a TV set up with a VCR and he had a stack of just porno movies. Then we got to looking and I noticed that his bedroom was padlocked. So we unlocked that. We went in and we saw wires coming from the bathroom into the bedroom. Well, he'd actually had a camera in there. So he'd had a camera fixed up. So 
when the kids would pleasure themselves, he was recording that. And I did interview him about that later, and uh, and I'll touch on that. But he had stacks of these, and we went back and looked at them, and they were all of boys between 14 and, say, 17 years old that he had recorded. And actually, when I did interview him, he admitted that he would go back and watch him, and he watched it for sexual gratification, admitted to me. Interviewed some more boys that he actually, there was one boy that he admitted he admitted to me that he did fondle him and the boy admitted to it. And most of these boys, they were not forthcoming. They were really, I mean, they just did not want to talk about it. I had to really work to try to get this information out of them. It was as though he had some type of weird control over these boys. After I did this search warrant, kind of dealt into it some more, interviewed some more people who led me to other people, I ended up finding out that this started back in 1977 through the 80s. This had been going on for 30 years that boys were coming over there and he was uh, sexually abusing them. I ended up interviewing a heart surgeon in North Carolina, a psychiatrist in Pennsylvania, another doctor in Texas. Uh, There was a psychiatrist in Nashville. And they all pretty much shared the same story about how he would introduce them to pornography movies, how he would show them how to masturbate. In fact, in the back of the house, there was this, they call it the little house in the back of his. And he had a secret room with a peephole in there. So when they would go in there and do whatever, he could sit there and watch them. And you'll find this interesting, Mike, that when I remember interview, I interviewed him several times and I remember talking to him about this behavior and he said something really strange. He goes, well, you know, society just looks at this a little bit differently than I do. And I remember, what are you talking about, Lewis? How do you condone this behavior? How would any society condone what you're doing? And he says, well, we just have a different opinions on how society looks at this. I go, well, we absolutely <laughs> do. And I'll never forget this. So I interviewed this psychiatrist. And this is how this control goes with this guy. After I uh, interviewed him, he ended up getting arrested. We had a preliminary hearing in federal court. And I remember this psychiatrist called me and he was very upset. As you know, we record all our interviews, right? Apparently, he had found out that I'd spoken to this guy who had been abused by him 25 years prior to this. He called me very upset. Why did you record this? You violated my rights. And I'm like, sir, I was just only recording this for my own accuracy. So I could actually make sure that everything you said was was true. And I, I didn't have any incorrect statements. And I go, let me ask you something. I take it. Mr. Levine has reached out to you. He goes, yeah. I said, do you see what's happening? I said, after all this time, he still has some type of control over you. Mm. And it just... I mean, it was just kind of just mind boggling to me that, you know, how he was able to victimize. And this was a psychiatrist, right? Absolutely. That's impacting. Well, it kind of goes to the heart of that whole argument of consent, right? That California is talking about. Yes. It's the manipulation, the control, the power that goes into this. How can a 14-year-old give consent to a guy like this, right? And you think about him. He would obviously allow these kids to come in and every kid that came in there, he didn't abuse. He, He knew what he was doing. He knew who to target. 
but they would all come in there and he'd make him feel very comfortable. I mean, think about it as a teenager, you can come in here, you want to drink, right, right. drugs, uh, mm-hmm. watch porno movies. You can do whatever you're safe here. You can do whatever you want. Well, the fact is he was sitting there targeting the boys that he wanted. Which is interesting when you look at this because he did this for 30 years, right? Correct. So he's very good at what he did. No matter what anybody says, he was very accomplished at what he was doing. Oh, for sure. For sure. And he had, um, and think about his what he was. He was a teacher. He probably knew who to invite who not to invite. But it is amazing you think about um, target victim target groups. Well, this particular target groups, think about it, they were pretty, came from affluent families. And they all, most of them went on to college. Not all of them, but most of them went on to college. Successful careers, families now. Um, I remember talking to this doctor in um, North Carolina and he just, he goes, you know, that was just a chapter in my life. I just, I just want to put it behind me. They were forthcoming, but they did not want to cooperate with any type of uh, prosecution at this point. What I found interesting, Jeff, is you sent over a couple of articles and, you know, for listeners, I put them up on our website, safehiringsolutions.com. If you go to podcast, I linked to a couple of articles Jeff shared on this. And one of them in particular really talks about these lavish Halloween parties that he would throw. And he was really grooming the neighborhood is what I read from this article because he was providing pornographic material to all the dads in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Well, and then one new family moved in and she confronted him on it, called the police. And then the neighborhood actually all began to dislike this new family because uh, she stopped the Halloween and the daddy porno supply. You know, I have friends that, that grew up here and I really good friend of mine. He goes, oh, I knew Louis Levine really well when he was a teacher at the Cumberland Science Museum. And the fact is, it was he also learned that from his father. His father, who was a city council member, was known for giving out just massive bags of candy during Halloween. And they always called them the the daddy bags because he'd give a bag of candy to the kids. And if the dads were there, he'd give them a bag that, you know, had like penthouse or Playboy or something in there. So I I guess in that respect, that was a learned behavior from his father. Mm. Mm. Scary. You know, and I'm always careful. I mean, my first gut reaction when I read the article and looked at his picture, you know, he's the kind of guy you go, "Mm." but I'm always cautious doing that because I don't want to label these guys as weirdos, psychos, monsters, because I'm afraid that feeds into a cultural myth that all of them are weird or look weird. And I know that came up in the article, a weirdness to his house. He was kind of weird. Not all these guys present themselves as really weird, though. Right. I think some would call him eccentric would be the word that they mm-hmm. would use. He was eccentric, mm-hmm. not, not, not weird, but mm-hmm. but it was. And it's and like I said, it, it, it's so hard to describe this house if you ever went in there. I remember one thing, I went up into the attic, and this attic was just packed with like toys from the 60s and 70s and 80s that were still packaged. Like, you know, with these toys that at one point he was given out back in the day, but it was just full of just lots of toys. And and like I said, this whole house was just so creepy with all his stuffed animals and and everything. I was always afraid when I was opening a drawer that some live snake was going to jump out at me or something, but it was, 
it, it was definitely creepy, but I can see why kids loved going over there because you could pretty much just do whatever you want. But none of these kids interviewing them, and, and especially I was able to identify several of them from on the videotapes. Clearly, none of them ever knew they were being videotaped. It makes you wonder, Jeff, if he had been a victim of abuse. You know, I, I guess it is possible for sure. And I have wondered that. I don't think I ever asked him that. We had several discussions with him. And, and again, it was actually he had a few political discussions, but I'll just leave it at that, Michael. OK, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. You know, it's interesting, too, when you're talking about the target and when we look at this bill in California, or sorry, law in California, and, you know, the high schoolers, I have a daughter that's a junior, 16, just started her junior year. But that time of adolescence, they're wanting to be independent. I mean, there's a lot of natural things going on, but wanting to be free, wanting to, to, to have freedom to do their thing and how enticing for them initially, right? To, oh, look, here's a, my parents don't get me and I want to, you know, I want to be able to do the things that they say it's, you shouldn't be doing. And he really locked into that and into that whole adolescent mode of wanting to kind of be the cool guy to, to get them entrapped, you know, into his web. And, and that's what's so interesting to me and what Mike wrote about with this California law is that 14, 15, 16, I mean, you know, kids are wanting, it's easy to reel them in. I mean, of course, they think they know everything, you know, at those ages, but there's so much vulnerability there. And when you have an authority figure, a teacher. For sure. Because what you're saying, a 14-year-old could, you know, there's teachers that are 23 years Right. years old. I mean, and I always look at, it's probably wrong, but you know, I have a daughter. I you know, we just had one daughter. And I always look at it from the perspective. My daughter was 14. How would you react if you found out she was having consensual sex, call it that, with a 23-year-old teacher? Exactly. So by definition, according to California, that's perfectly legal. Is that correct, Mike? Well, it can still be charged, but you're not required or they have discretion of whether or not you have to register as a sex offender, which just creates that cascading problem of visitor management systems. I know you have one at the school. So now if I'm not registered, that person shows up in Nashville and comes in to visit your school and a quick scan is only checking against the sex offender registry. There's nothing there, right? So it's really what this law starts and I think we go to the heart of this as we're kind of wrapping up two things that you really are, are bringing out. One is grooming and how really good these individuals are at grooming and um, doing the thing, the drugs, the alcohol. I understand you providing those things. It's a, it's a grooming, but he was grooming the whole neighborhood. So, you know, that one was really interesting. And then in the article, I also, you know, where the people talked about the weirdness of his house, that kind of stands out, but it's that informed intuition and how often intuitively we look at something or see something and go, ooh, that's not right. But how often we are trained culturally to override that intuition, which is really a tool to keep us safe. But a lot of that came out in this article that I read that you, that you shared. For sure. And, and, you know, you think about, I always wonder why didn't any of these kids ever come forward and disclose? Is it because he did such a good 
job of grooming? Did he do such a good job of manipulating them? Is it because of their background, because they came from affluent neighborhoods or, or families that they did not want to disclose? Even after all these years, um, they still didn't want to talk about it. You know, it just makes you wonder, Is it was he just that good at grooming and knew exactly who he wanted with his victims? Wow. Well, Jeff... I know you're a busy man, and I appreciate you taking some time out to uh, jump on the podcast. But we, in closing, we, we want to go to the lighter side because, Mike, we understand that Jeff has a little story about you. Mike may not remember this, but him and I, while we're working in domestic violence, I had a warrant on this guy. And I said, hey, Mike, why don't you come with me? And um, so we go walk into this house. I, I didn't know what he looked like. I just had the warrant. I had his name and stuff. And uh, it's probably for assault. We go up to this house and um, the front door was uh, open, but there was screen door was open. So you could see inside. Of course, you know, I'm from Michigan. Mike's from Indiana. We say police up there, correct? But in the South, they say police. So a a different. I'll never forget this. So here we are in our uniforms and I go and I knock on the door and, uh, and there was about six or seven guys sitting around the table. And I remember one of them just yelled out, come on in as long as you're not the police. So I look at Mike, I go, I go, what if we are the police? And, and went walking in and we were just kind of cracking up. And, and I don't know if they were playing poker or something, but I remember there like seven of them were sitting around in this circle. There was probably some drug paraphernalia on this table. I go, all right, which one is John Smith? I remember six of them turned and they all looked at this one guy. I said, all right, come on with me. So we put him on cuffs and we had a great laugh about about that one. As long as you are the police. police. (laughs) One of the many fun fun things that we did. You had to make the job fun too. Well, I was going to say, with all that you uh, guys have to face, you you have to have some laughs somewhere, right? For sure. For sure. Oh, well, thank you, Jeff, so much. For well, thank you. Uh, it was a pleasure being on your podcast, and, and always good to see you, Mike. Good to see you. All right. Thank you very much. This podcast is sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions, a nationwide company that offers comprehensive, industry-leading, real-time security solutions for companies, schools, churches, and nonprofit organizations.